0: follow along as I read God's word. If you are thankful for God's gift to us in his uh, word, join me to say thanks be to God uh, after we're done reading. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, You mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, and all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. I wonder if you could finish the line of this song. Just a small town girl living in a lonely world. How far can you go? She took the midnight train Going anywhere? Okay. We've got to work on that a little bit. Okay. If you can finish this one, I'd be really impressed. It goes like this. Harry Truman, Doris Day, Red China, Johnny Ray, South Pacific, Walter Winchell, Joe DiMaggio, Joe McCarthy, Richard Nixon, Studer Baker Television, North Korea, South Korea, Marilyn Monroe. That's We Didn't Start the Fire by Billy Joel. Uh, Memory is a funny thing. I wonder why can you and I remember random song lyrics? but so easily forget the benefits of the Lord. Is it just because words put to song are easier to remember? Well, yeah, I think in part that's true, but I also think there's something deeper going on than just that. At the beginning of Psalm 103, David calls on himself to remember the Lord, not to forget all the good that he's done to him. And as the psalm continues, he's going to refer to Israel's story in the Exodus and in the wilderness, Right, there's stories like this, that God first heard the cry of his people when they were enslaved. He kept his promise that he made to Abraham. He redeemed his people out of slavery. He displayed his unrivaled power and grace in setting them free. And then through the desert and through the wilderness, God displayed his all-sufficient grace in providing for them. He gave them manna to eat. He gave them water to drink. And for all the good that God had given to Israel, what was Israel's constant refrain might remember from the book of Numbers. What do they constantly say? What do they so easily say? We had it better in Egypt. <laughs> God, you brought us out of Egypt in order to kill us. Now, you might think, you know, Israel's forgetting God, forgetting who God is and forgetting the good that God's done to them. You might think, well... Israel, some slack, right? I mean, they are in the desert after all, right? I mean, they, they don't know where the next meal's coming from. Uh, they're surrounded by hostile opponents, things like snakes. They go through earthquakes. Maybe once they just get into a little better set of circumstances, then, then maybe they can start to remember the Lord a little bit better. Well, if you think that, you would be wrong. <laughs> they needed more than just right circumstances, they needed new hearts. What we read earlier, you see, once they got settled down in the land, once their circumstances were better, what happened? God himself knew what would happen. He knew they would forget him. He talks about it in Deuteronomy 8. He says, when you have eaten and are full and you've built good houses, you live in them, when your herds and your flocks multiply, when your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you will forget me who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So my friend, why can you so easily remember random song lyrics, but you so easily forget the Lord and the good that he's done to you? Well, you can learn from Israel's story. You learn that you and I have a constant bent toward wrong memories. We rewrite our own history. You and I have a constant bent toward wrong thoughts about God. You and I have a constant bent towards self-sufficiency. You and I want to listen to ourselves. You and I want to only rely on ourselves. So if the people of God are like containers like we talked about last week, then our wrong memories and our wrong thoughts about God and our self-sufficiency, all of those things, are like the holes that make that container leak. To mix the metaphor, you and I are like my guitar, which I managed only to pick up and play maybe once or twice a month. And it it just, whenever I play it, whether it's sitting in the blazing sun of the summer, whether it's the harsh cold of the winter or the pleasant temperatures of the spring or fall, whenever I pick up my guitar to play it, it's without fail. Its strings are always out of tune. It's just what it's bent toward. And so here's Psalm 103. And Psalm 103 helps you to plug the holes of your heart. Psalm 103 is meant to help you Tune your instrument so that you sing God's grace. You see how it begins? It begins with David talking to himself. He's telling himself, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. Why would he tell himself that unless he knew that his heart has holes in it that leaks the truth about about God that he knows? Why would he tell himself, self-bless the Lord and all that's within me, unless he knows that his instrument is out of tune and needs tuning? And just even before we dive into this psalm, I wonder if these are even categories for you, friend, in your walk with the Lord. Maybe you're so perpetually out of whack. Maybe you're unrelentingly indifferent to God and to the gospel, because you don't consistently and seriously address the holes that are in your heart. You just let them leak. You let your instruments stay out of tune. You never, you never make them on key. So if that's you, I want you to listen. I want you to let this part of God's word to give you hope again. That if your heart is a container and it seems perpetually empty, then there is hope for you that those holes can be plugged and that you can be filled again. That if your heart is an instrument, there's hope for you to be in tune and to sing again. We get to see in Psalm 103 how David plugs the holes of his heart and how he tunes the strings of his instrument. We get it up like this, that David's, uh, that our right memory of God and right thoughts of God lead us to right praise of God. Right memory, right thoughts lead to right praise of God. That's going to structure our time together this morning. It uh, mirrors how this psalm progresses. So let's begin with right memory. We're looking at verses 1 to 5. So in verses 1 to 5, David remembers five benefits that the Lord has given to him. And before we unpack those, we need to make a crucial observation before we dive in. This observation is going to affect how you read this psalm. This observation is going to affect how you read these benefits that David talks about. This observation is even going to affect how you approach the entire Christian life. Are you ready? I want you to observe in verses 1 through 5 that David doesn't bless the Lord in order to get the Lord to bless him. That's not the order. No David wants to bless the Lord because the Lord already has blessed him. Do you see the difference there? So imagine if David had this mindset. Imagine if he had the mindset if, you know, if only I could praise God with all that I have, then maybe God might bless me. That mindset would be crippling and devastating. I, I want to show you this. I remember someone showing me this in college. Uh, So if you're able, uh, why don't you raise your hand as high as you can? If you're able. Uh, So raise it now a little bit higher. Okay, so really you didn't raise your hand the highest you could the first time, did you? (laughs) So as a reminder, you can always do more. If God blessed you only once, only when you praised him with everything you have, you could never do enough. You could always do more. If this is how it worked, it would be a crushing weight of uncertainty and insecurity, but thank God it's not how it works. David blesses God because he's already been blessed. I've heard it. Uh, I've heard an analogy that David is like King Ahasuerus from the book of Esther. I wonder if you remember that guy. So Mordecai, Esther's cousin, worked in the king's court and Mordecai discovered a plot to kill the king But the king didn't know about this plot, and he didn't know that Mordecai was the one who saved him. That is until one night when the king couldn't sleep. And the king wants some light reading material, so he says, go and fetch me the court minutes. I don't know why he wants to read that. It must have been God's providence. So he looks at this particular part of the court minutes, and he discovers that Mordecai saved his life. And it was after that, after that, that the king wanted to bless Mordecai. So do you see what's going on here? Do you see how David's similar with the Lord? The king didn't bless Mordecai in order to get Mordecai to save his life. No, 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 no. The king blessed Mordecai because Mordecai already had saved his life. Same thing's going on here. David wants to bless God because God has already blessed him. And what has God blessed him with? Like we said, David mentions five benefits. Now, surely all of God's benefits can't be limited just to five, but think of these like the first pearls on the golden chain of blessing, okay? So we're just going to go through them individually, just quickly at a time. Benefit one, God forgives all your iniquity. If you should think about that sentence, and every single word is meaningful. God forgives all your iniquity. And it's not just that every word is meaningful, that David starts with this one is meaningful. I don't think David's just reaching down at the bag of blessing and pulling this one out first at random. I think he starts with this one intentionally. Because if you don't re- uh, receive this blessing, you can't receive any of the others. Because look at how David has described God at the end of verse 1 that God is holy. That means God is without iniquity. But you and me, we have iniquity. So for you and I to be close to God, your iniquity, your sin must be addressed. And not only does it need to be wiped clean, not only does it need to be paid for, your iniquity, your sin needs to be forgiven. This tells you that your iniquity has hindered your relationship with God, that you've offended God, that you've wronged God. So not only do your sins need to be paid for, you need God to forgive you. And praise God that he does both. He forgives all your sins iniquity. Someone else shared this with me. Uh, R.C. Sproul, a Bible teacher, would uh, frequently ask this question, and especially if you're not a Christian here this morning, I want to ask this to you. What do you do with your guilt? What do you do with your guilt? Do you just ignore it? Do you just deny your guilt? Do you simply just try to get away around your guilt? Do you simply just try to make up for your guilt and compensate for it? What do you do with your guilt? Friends, the the only solution to it is that you can be forgiven of your guilt. Not just forgiven by yourself, not just forgiven by others, but the forgiveness you really need. You can be forgiven by God. What do you do with your guilt? I would urge you today, take your guilt to God. He forgives all your iniquity. Yes, even that one sin that pops up in your mind unannounced when you're trying to go to bed, he forgives even that one. Take your guilt to God because God's own son bore our guilt in his body on the tree so that we would bear it no more. He forgives all your iniquity. David's remembering, he's remembering a second benefit, that God heals all your diseases. Now, these two lines, uh, Forgive all your iniquity and heal all your diseases. These two lines of verse three go together. Remember that one of the main features of Hebrew poetry is parallel lines. So iniquities are in some way related to diseases. So if this is the case, then the types of diseases that David's talking about first are diseases of the heart. So you could start to see then how these two are fitting together, how these two benefits go together. You commit iniquities because your heart is diseased. So, right, not only does God forgive, God also cures. God doesn't just treat the symptom. He cures the disease. Not only does God pardon sin, He gives power so that we can no longer sin. Not only does God forgive the sin that separates us from Him, He gives us new hearts so that we can stay close to Him. He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. So, my friend, if you feel hopeless in the fight against that one sin against that anger, against that lust, against that jealousy, against that addiction. If you feel hopeless in that fight, remember all of God's benefits, that he has forgiven you and he has freed you, healed your heart. That the same Jesus who died for your sin rose again, crushing the power of sin so that you render yourself alive to God and dead to sin. Now, I'll nuance this a little bit. While I think that David thinks first of our heart disease, I think it is also true that God will heal all your physical diseases if he has redeemed you in Christ. He will eventually heal all of your physical diseases. So here's how this works. Jesus, in rising from the dead, is rolling back all the effects of sin on the world One way he's doing that, and he's previewed that in his earthly ministry, is ridding the world of death and decay and disease. And while you and I might get taste of that work, God heals and does heal now. He won't completely rid the world of disease and death until he returns. One commentator on this passage offers this wise insight. So when you ask God to forgive you of your sin, based on Jesus and what he has done, God will always do it immediately. 1 John 1, 8-9. But when you ask God to heal you physically, he will not always do it immediately. Consider Paul's thorn in 2 Corinthians 12. Why is this? It's because sin always separates you from God and he'll remove it so that you can be close to him. But suffering can actually deepen your relationship to God. It can actually pull you closer to him. So when you ask him to remove it, he doesn't always, do. he doesn't always remove it. But he will one day. Benefit three, David's remembering. He redeems your life from the pit. Remember, Christian. Here's a thought experiment for you. Where would you be if God didn't save you? Where would you be if God hadn't saved you? I can't even ask, answer that question uh, exhaustively, but uh, I tried thinking of it myself. If God hadn't saved me, I know about me. I know that I would love money. I know that I would be obsessed with a successful and comfortable lifestyle. I know that about myself, just given the temptations that I feel now. I know that I would, if if God hadn't saved me, I know I would live a lifestyle of objectifying women. I would be knee-deep in all the addictions and all the practices that go with it. If God hadn't saved me, I know, just even given my upbringing, I know I would have some type of veneer of niceness, but inside I would be mean, selfish, and critical. If God hadn't saved me, I know that I would be self-righteous and falsely self-assured because I would probably still be a respectable, good person on the outside who goes to church occasionally. If God hadn't saved me, that's who I would be, probably. And I'm not saying I no longer need to battle those sins, battle those tendencies, but I am saying that those sins no longer enslave me. Redeem is the language of purchasing out of slavery. My fellow Christian... Dear brother and sister, do you remember how God redeemed you? He redeemed you by going into the pit himself. Jesus was swallowed up by death. Jesus bore the wrath of hell so that you wouldn't have to. Benefit four, he crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. You can look at all these benefits that we've seen so far. So you could be forgiven, you could be healed, you could be redeemed. But then... You could just be left to yourself. But instead, don't forget, Christian, that you are loved by God himself. More than his physical crown, David David prizes this crown, that I am loved by God. And notice, God doesn't give out this crown based on David's merit. He gives out this crown based on his own mercy. The last benefit David talks about, he satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. Charles Spurgeon observes about this benefit, uh, that the world and the people in the world might be satiated, but they are not satisfied. They might be satiated, but they are not satisfied. So a pastor I know shared a video. Uh, It was a group of senior citizens. Uh, at a casino, all sitting together, maybe a dozen of them sitting uh, uh, next to each other. And they were all at the slot machines. And all of them just mindlessly tapping the button to play the next one until they hit the jackpot in some way. Just all of them, looks like the brain turned off, this is just what they do all day. And he commented very soberly that, say, this is how the devil wants to send you to hell mindlessly distracted and satiated, hiding from you where true and lasting satisfaction is. So this verse reminds you that, uh, Christian, do you feel that your outer self is wasting away? Well, knowing God is forgiver and healer and redeemer and king means that even when your outer self does waste away, your inner self is renewed day by day. So tell your soul, tell all that is within you to bless the Lord. What David's saying, it takes all that's in him to remember all of God's benefits. As you look at verses one to five, do you see how personal these verses are? David's talking at the individual level. Look at all the pronouns he uses. He uses I, me, you, your. You need to make verses one to five your own. How will you daily fix your memory? How will you remember God's benefits to you personally every day? How will you put these benefits in your own words? Theologian J.I. Packer used to tell himself this every day. He used to tell himself six things. That I am a child of God. That God is my father. That heaven is my home. That every day is one day nearer. And my savior is my brother. And that every Christian is my brother too. He would remind himself of that every day. Another pastor would carry in his wallet a little piece of paper with four words on it, simply stating, the verdict is in. He needed to remind himself of God's benefit, that God's not waiting to bless him until after he performs really well. No, the verdict is already in. Christ has already performed and satisfied the perfect life we should have lived and the death that we deserved. The verdict is in. Friends, you and I are prone to rewrite our past. To think that God has cursed us rather than benefited us. So what these verses are telling you is that no matter what a day may bring, if you trust and follow Jesus Christ, these benefits are always true. They're always true. David wants all that he is to bless the Lord for all that the Lord has done. He's working on bringing his hearts to praise God rightly, so he begins with right memory, and he continues with what I'm labeling right thoughts. Now, verses 6 through 14 are similar to verses 1 through 5, but I think there are some differences. So, David's no longer talking anymore about what God has done to him personally. He's now talking about what God has done and continues to do with all of his people. And David's not just talking about what God does, he's also talking about what God's like. Now, if you look closely at verses six through eight, you can see that they mirror the Exodus story. right, so first, verse six, God heard the cry of his oppressed people. He saw the violation of his righteous standard. He brought about justice by delivering them and judging their oppressors. Then God gave the law through Moses. Then he sustained all of Israel by providing food and water in the wilderness. And then God revealed what he's like. Psalm 103, verse eight is pretty much a direct quote from Exodus 34, verse 6, which is the central statement of God's character in the Old Testament. So you see what David's doing. And remember, we're saying that David wants to think rightly about God. And if David wants to think rightly about God, where does he turn to do that? Well, I'll tell you where he doesn't turn. To think rightly about God, David doesn't turn to himself. He doesn't turn inward. It's not how it works. It's not how it worked for Moses either. Verse 7 doesn't say, um, Moses just looked deep into his heart, and then he discovered God's ways on his own. No. Verse 7 says, God made known his ways to Moses. You see, there's this prevailing view of God today. It's not new. That God, he or she or them, has got to be up there somewhere. But we really can't know what God's like Uh, We know he's out there. Uh, We know probably he just wants me to to be happy. He wants me to be nice. Uh, He lets the good people go to heaven, and only the really, really bad people don't. And if you ask me what good is, I'll just basically give you a portrait of myself. Uh, And when people want to know what God's like, really, they just look at what they say. It's not what David does. When David wants to see what God's like, he he looks at how God has revealed himself. David doesn't look at what he says about God. He looks at what God says about himself. David's not left to this subjective, relativistic game of, hey, if that works for you, man, it's all good. No, God has objectively revealed what he's like. You don't get to define him. He defines himself. And you know how merciful and gracious God is. That God gave that statement revealing his character in verse 8. God gave that statement. you know when he did? He gave it right after the golden calf incident. He gave that statement revealing who he is right after people decided, we're going to define God on our own. We're going to make a God in our own image. That's when God revealed what he's actually like. That is how gracious and merciful God is. God loves to reveal what he's actually like to idolaters like you and me. So David sees what God is actually like, now what he says about him. And then he continues in verse nine. And it's like he checks all of his potential incorrect thoughts that he has about God. He says, I I looked at what God's actually like and I'm gonna stave off any potential incorrect thoughts that I have about him. Verses nine to 14, you can see them. Just gonna go through one verse at a time briefly. Verse nine, God doesn't chide always. He's not angry forever. Can you see how this corrects what we might be tempted to think about God? It's just natural. You can see we might be tempted to think that God does chide always. We might be tempted to think that for his children, God is always angry at them. God's all, you might just have this low-level feeling, God's always going to be upset with me. My friend, how can God be angry forever at someone who's he, whom he's forgiven and healed and redeemed and crowned like we already saw? How can God be angry forever at a person like that? Maybe you think it's healthy for a Christian, to, for a forgiven Christian, always to carry this low-level feeling of guilt. Maybe you think that's part of the Christian life. No. It, it, this verse tells you God does chide, But he doesn't, because he doesn't want his children to harbor sin in their lives, yet even behind his chiding is loving. And God does not chide forever. He's not always angry. David's correcting his wrong thoughts about God with right thoughts. Look at verse 10. Maybe you think that God sort of holds the scales of justice in his hands, that if your good doesn't outweigh your bad, then you're really in trouble. First of all, your bad needs more to, your bad needs to be more than outweighed. Your bad needs to be paid for. And second of all, your good could never outweigh your bad. What would it actually look like if, verse, if the opposite of verse 10 was true? What would it look like if God really did deal with you according to your sin? What would it actually look like if God did repay you for your iniquity? Well, it would look like you would be being dead a long time ago. You look at verses 9 and 10. You might be tempted to think that God's a lot like you. That God gets angry quickly. That like you, if like the person sitting uh, in front of you at the stoplight, uh, if they don't press the gas in two seconds, that you're going to beep at them and curse at them. You think God's like you. He always makes people pay. He never lets go of grudges. Verses 9 and 10 tell you that God's not like you. God is slow to anger. He forgives. He's gracious. Verses 11 and 12. David wants to think about God rightly, correct the wrong thoughts about God he just so naturally has. You look at verses 11 and 12. Maybe you think incorrectly that God loves me only to a certain point, that God loves me when I'm doing well. Maybe you think that God loves me when I'm doing enough good things for him. Maybe you think that God loves me, but he's pretty much left me to figure things out and make it on my own. Now, we've already seen that God loves you. His love reached down to the pit, and his love will bring you up all the way to heaven, never leaving you in between. You look at verses 11 and 12, it, it, it corrects our incorrect thoughts. Maybe you think... Uh, God loves me no matter what. And that means he doesn't really care if I'm basically indifferent toward him in my own daily life. And I just sort of do my own thing. Maybe that's your how you function. Verses 11 and 12 remind you that those who have received God's forgiveness, those who have received healing and redemption will fear the Lord. That means they'll want to be close to him. They'll want to live lives that are pleasing to him. Look at verses 11 and 12. It corrects your incorrect thoughts about God. Here's another one. Maybe you think that right now, and even when you get to heaven, that God's always going to give you this message, either indirectly or directly. He's always going to remind you all the time, hey, just remember, you don't deserve to be with me, and you don't deserve to be here. Maybe you think that's how God acts towards you. These verses remind you that God has removed Your transgression. You might still deal with the natural effects of your choices and your sin, but as we sang earlier, God has thrown them into a sea without bottom or shore. Verses 13 and 14 correct your incorrect thoughts about God. I've heard another pastor explain it like this You might think of your Heavenly Father through the lens of your earthly father. And so maybe your earthly father didn't show you compassion. So for you, calling God father carries a lot of baggage. Verses 13 and 14 help you. That God can help you to see your earthly father through the lens of your heavenly father. And you can start to reflect the forgiveness that you've received. I look at verses 13 and 14 and I'd be remiss not to talk to dads, to the dads in the room just for a moment. Dads, if you are a forgiven and healed and redeemed and loved child of God, look at what these verses tell you. These verses tell you that you have a unique opportunity to reflect the compassion that your heavenly father has given you. You have a unique opportunity in your family to reflect what God's like in giving his compassion. With God's help, would you do that? Here's another one. You look at verse 14. What's a potential wrong thought that you and I can have about ourselves and about God? You could think wrongly that God expects me to have it all together all the time. You could think wrongly that God expects me never to show or to admit any kind of weakness. You could think wrongly that God expects me always to have a smiling face and to be cheery all the time. God expects me never to display my need, never to ask for help. That's not what God's like. And when we believe that's what God's like as a church, oh, there are really bad consequences. When we believe this is what God's like, then as a church, we will force one another either to hide or to be fake. I don't want that for this church. I don't want you to have to hide or be fake in this body of believers. Verse 14 tells you, corrects you, God knows how you were made. He's the one who did it. In fact, he knows your weaknesses better than you. He, his own son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, is able to sympathize with all of your weaknesses because he himself went through them and he went through them even without sin. Friends, if God knows your weaknesses, won't you be honest about them and won't you ask for help? So let's zoom back up. Verses 6 through 14. God has revealed what he's actually like and not just what you think he's like. That corrects our natural wrong thoughts about him. This is so important because your view of what God's like will really determine the direction of your life. I think Jesus actually talks about this in the parable of the talents. You might remember. Parable of the talents, there are three guys, uh, their master gives them a certain number of talents or money, right? The first guy gets 10 talents, the second guy gets five talents, the last guy gets one talent, right? And so they're, they're all sent out, they're entrusted with this, the first two guys, they multiply what they received. They are good stewards of what they've received. The last guy, the third one, who got one talent, he reports back to his boss, and he didn't do anything with what he received. Why? Why, why did he squander what he received? Well, he actually explains it. He, he gives his explanation and says, Hey, boss, I knew that you're a hard man. So you see, his view of his boss determined the direction of his life. His motivation was a mischaracterization of who who his master was actually like. His negative view led him to squander what was entrusted to him. Your view about God will determine largely the direction of your life. So let's go back over what we've covered. But right? if, if you think, however unconsciously, if you think that God will always chide, if you think that God's going to be angry at you forever, if you think that God's always going to hold your past over your head, if you think that God has it out for you, if you think that God's stingy, if you think that God's indifferent toward your behavior, if you think that God's indifferent doesn't care about your weakness, if you think that that's what God's like, why would you want to praise him? Are you surprised that you're empty of praise if you think that's what God's like? you need to go back to the word like David does and correct your thoughts about God. Stop listening to what you say God's like and start listening to what he says about himself. And when you do that, you're gonna see something even greater than Psalm 103. You will see his son who shows what the father is like perfectly. How is it that God cannot always chide? How is it? How does that work? It's because he chided his son in our place. How is it that God cannot be angry at us forever? He should be. It's because God poured out his anger for our sin on his son. How can God not deal with us according to our sins? How could he not repay us for what we've done? It's because Jesus paid for it. Oh, my friend, you will see the true dimensions of God's love from east to west when you see the hands of Jesus stretch on the cross for you. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, you could see how God can both be righteous and just in verse 6 and how he can be merciful and gracious in verse 8. God does not eliminate his standard. God does not sweep our sin under the rug, turn a blind eye. No, God gave his own very son. He met the standard. He paid for the sin. This is the Father's gracious, merciful, compassionate gift to dusty sinners in the pit like us. Won't you receive it? Won't you bask in it all of your life and correct your wrong thoughts about God by looking at the gospel again? Well, we need to move on briefly to verses 15 to 22. David is now reoriented. He's seeing things rightly. The holes are plugged. The strings are tuned. In verses 15 and 16, he freely acknowledges his own weakness and his own frailty. It's worse than he ever thought. But that just makes God's love larger than he ever imagined. That such a great God, the God he says that rules over all, that such a great God would love such a small and sinful person like him, oh, this is when his heart wells up with right praise. And David understands with new eyes that God is worthy of praise from those near and those far. That God is too great for David's song just to be a solo. God deserves a choir. From those closest to his throne, the angels who compose his armies or his hosts, to all of his works and all of his creation, David calls for a mighty choir to praise the one and only living God. But look at how David's psalm ends, the very last line. He ends how he begins. He calls on himself once again. I appreciate how uh, commentator Derek Kidner says on this last verse that David knows that God deserves a choir of praise, but David also knows that he has his own part to contribute. What about you? Won't you contribute your part to this choir of praise? Won't you remember again? All of God's benefits that he's mercifully given to you. Won't you think about what God's really like? Not what you think that he's like. And when you do this, when you really do this, you can't help but to praise him. Let's pray. Prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave you, the God we love. Here are our hearts, O oh Lord. Take and seal them. Seal them for your courts above. Tune our hearts to sing your grace. God, help us to remember rightly. To remember your great mercy to us. Help us, Lord, to think rightly about who you are and what you're like. And God, if, if there is someone here who has not remembered rightly and thought correctly ever for the first time, would you enter into that person's heart? Would you open it and draw that person to you? That they would rest in the grace that you have provided in your son and trust him. And all of us together would bask in your goodness day after day, so that our hearts, together like a choir, would sing your praise. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.